The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock this evening. It gives me great pleasure now to welcome to the show Patrick Radden Keefe, the writer, the podcaster, the author as well. Uh, of oh God, a number of award-winning books. Uh, some of you may have read Empire of Pain, detailing the opioid epidemic in the States and the role the Sackler family uh, played in that, a bit more on that. Uh, and on Patrick as well wrote uh, Say Nothing and Where the Bodies Are Buried, a, a focus on the disappeared and, and one particular case, a case well known to all of us uh, here on this island uh, a few years ago. Uh, Patrick, thanks a million for joining us on the show. I, I know you're, you're on your way to Ireland uh, next month uh, for this festival of writing and ideas, and I'm going to give people all the details uh, uh, in a few minutes of of where they can get tickets and exactly what you're going to be talking about. I wonder, though, before we talk talk about any of of that work, if I can ask you about guns and gun control. And obviously, we have been talking about that for the last few days here on this show, as has every similar uh, show right around uh, the world, and. In advance of us speaking, you know, I, I was going back through some of your work, the work on, on, on Amy Bishop, obviously a, a, a mass shooter in a university a few years ago, and a piece as well you wrote in the wake of Sandy Hook. And you use a phrase uh, in that piece after Sandy Hook, the US has slipped its moorings and drifted into a realm of profound national lunacy. Do you still subscribe to that belief? Is it truer today than ever before? It is. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the, the crazy thing to think is I, I wrote that 10 years ago. I wrote that the morning after Sandy Hook. Um, and we'd just seen these kind of progressively worse and worse mass shootings, both in the in the frequency, you know, in the in the sense that they're just happening all the time now. Um, but also the people getting killed. I mean, it, that was when I wrote that it was shortly after Gabrielle Giffords, a, a, you know, US Congresswoman had been shot, she just barely survived. Um, and then you had this massacre of school children. And I think there was a question that people had, which was, you know, what's it going to take? Um, and I, I confess I was probably a bit cynical 10 years ago. I thought, you know, what'll happen is we'll have a sort of spasm of outrage that'll last a few days and then nothing will change. And I was right. And wh why do you suspect that is? Well, I think it's complicated. I mean, I think some of it is is the nature of our politics that we have, you know, we have this filibuster in in um, uh, in Congress, which means that you get these uh, elected representatives who are basically in hawk to the arms industry, and so I think that's some of it. That I, I think that you have a lot of politicians who are bought and paid for. Um, and you still have a gun lobby that exercises tremendous influence. I think some of it is in our, you know, in our kind of founding myths, right? About, about the lone gunman <laughs> and the wild west. And there's this sort of sense of American individualism, um, you know, which becomes a suicide pact at a certain point. I mean, I think that's what we're finding, right? Is that the, the price of freedom is, is that your kids can get shot to death at school. And, and for some, I mean, that's a price worth paying, it seems. That they, they, they themselves well, will never some, put it in yeah. those stark I mean, terms, that, but it, this it's is obvious the madness it is. of it, right? Is that, yeah, this, this is, is the madness of it, is that, these, um, is that the, the people, and there are many people who uh, 
you know, they'll, they'll never concede as much, but they're basically apologists and enablers for this kind of activity. And you see them just in the last 48 hours. I mean, they, you know, what, what are they saying now? They say, well, the problem isn't guns. You know, they say the problem is mental illness. Well, we have mental illness in countries. There's mental illness in Ireland. There's mental illness everywhere. Uh, and yet you don't see these kinds of massacres happening anywhere else with this sort of frequency. Um, and so then their next solution is they say, well, we need to arm the teachers. But of course, in this case that we've just seen playing out in Texas, there were armed guards at the school. And in fact, there were these heavily militarized cops who had assault weapons who basically came and stood around outside the school, but they didn't want to take the risk of going in and engaging the shooter. So the shooter's inside massacring children and the cops are outside not going in. And then the parents show up at the school and the parents want to go in. And what do the cops do? The cops stop the parents from going in. See, I, the whole the world is always aghast at, at something like this and appalled. But then it's easy for us. We just go back to our lives and our kids go into school and we don't have to worry about it. How I mean, how despairing is it to know in advance that despite all of the talk and you're right, it is like Sandy Hook all over again, that that ultimately what is happening or what will happen is what Ted Cruz talked about today. I mean, God almighty, we could call Ted Cruz a lot of things. But anyway, Ted Cruz uh, outside the school uh, blaming an open back door uh, and the fact that yeah, there were right. not enough kind of guns in, in, in the hands of sane people on campus. I mean, that, that like we, we 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 can almost joke like if it wasn't so awful, we can almost joke about that type of reaction. No, but you, yes, you have that, to joke. But that's you, the reaction that that's going to be the fruit that that is going to come to fruition. Like the, Ted Cruz will have his way. Doors will be locked and cops will get more guns. And there'll be more guns. The cops will have more guns. The teachers will have guns. Um, I mean, I guess this is the reason I mentioned the cops outside not going in is that in a situation in which you have you have, you know, armed and trained law enforcement officers weren't able to summon the nerve to intervene and stop this one guy. Do you think teachers would do so even if they had weapons? I mean, it's madness. But this is, you know, you say you could almost laugh at it. You have to because because it's because absurd. We've sort of reached a point of absurdity where it's the only it's grotesque. It's the only way to understand it. I mean, you know, to the notion that we would need more guns, there's more guns than people in the United States right now. How many more guns do we need? I uh, listen, it's it's incredibly dispiriting. And I don't know, you know, there's a sort of perverse sense in which I think when I wrote that piece 10 years ago, what I was saying was, we all get very exercised when this happens. But then a few days go by, and everybody goes back to their normal lives. The interesting thing now is that the frequency is picking up. So you know, we just had a terrible massacre a week ago in Buffalo. And scarcely a week goes by, and you get another one, who knows? what the next few days will bring. And so maybe there might be some sense in which we're so demoralized as a nation just by the tempo of these massacres that something happens. But but even if there's political change, you know, it's it's going to be hard to put the genie out back in the bottle. There's 300 million guns. There's so many guns. Yeah, you'd have to have some sort yeah. of gun amnesty as well. And, and Absolutely. And, and, now, listen, they've done it in other countries. I mean, I think if, if the political will were there, of course, it would take time and it would be imperfect. But if you could save one school full of four and five and six year olds, you know? Yeah, it, it's an awful thing to suggest. And sorry, suggest is a, is a terrible word to use there. It's an awful thing to countenance. But like you're possibly looking at the assassination of a president 
uh, or, or the entire cabinet by somebody holding an AR-15 before something happens. Realistically, I mean, the, the, the society is, has proven itself inured to dead children at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know. And honestly, even in the in the awful event that such a thing were to happen, uh, as you suggest, I I don't know. I mean, I think there'd be lots of other people who came out and said the problem was there weren't, you know, the pre the president should have been armed. Right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, there's a kind of it's a one way ratchet yeah. with these guys. Right. Yes. And only their arguments yes. only ever, ever tend in one direction. Um, well, listen, we, we, we will part that discussion there because I suspect tomorrow, given that there's an actual NRA convention uh, happening in Texas, of all places, we will be coming back to it uh, on the show, uh, dispiriting us all as that might sound, but it is important to, to at least try and keep the focus uh, on it. Um, can I ask you about, again, before we come to, to, to some of the books, and I, and I really want to ask about um, you know, say nothing uh, as well. But uh, Wind of Change, because I, I hugely enjoyed this podcast and I think a lot of people listening might have listened uh, to it, but not everyone. So can you just maybe describe the premise of it for us? Yeah, so this was a, um, you know, I had just written this quite dark book about the troubles and, and I was, and I would, I would go on to write a rather dark book about the opioid crisis. But in between, I just, I had a lot of fun with this podcast. It was a story, a tip that I got about a decade ago from a source of mine about a song called Wind of Change, which is this kind of uh, power ballad by the Scorpions, this heavy metal act from Germany, yeah. which was kind of the, it was sort of the soundtrack to the end of the Cold War. You know, it was a very popular song, went to number one all across Europe, and it came out right around the time the Berlin Wall fell. And it, and it was really sort of, it was out there. People were singing it on the streets as the, as the Soviet Union dissolved. And the tip that I got was that the song wasn't actually written by the Scorpions, the band. The song was written by the CIA. And so I spent years trying to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> and at a certain point, thought it'd be fun to do a podcast about my adventures, trying to figure out whether there was any truth to this outlandish conspiracy theory about espionage and, and, uh, and leather-clad Cold War <laughs> rockers. It is, it, it is a great listen for people who haven't got around to it wind of change although it should come with a little warning that you're going to find yourself humming and whistling uh the song yeah. for days on end it is one of those songs yeah. i mean the the interest well, in it was a, it was it's it, an earworm it is an earworm was it was it born of like were you into uh, music was it history that appealed to you or was it you know secrecy this idea that there's kind of there are secrets out there that people know that we must unearth yeah, it was definitely secrecy, but I mean, I've always, I've always loved music. I wasn't necessarily a heavy metal fan, but the um, but I've always been into music and the the idea of I mean, you would know you you're an audio, but for me, I'm mostly a print person, right? So for me, it was so thrilling to be able to work with sound and music, and you know, we went to um, I mean, it's quite moving to listen to it now, but in the second episode of the podcast, we went to Kiev. Um, in 2019 and actually saw the Scorpions play in Kyiv, which was a very emotional moment um, because, of course, you know, people, Ukrainians who were Scorpions fans at that point, you know, the, the notion of a, of a wind of change, um, I think it had more meaning for them than it did for me. You know, they knew that, that Russia wanted to, to uh, w w was still in a conquest kind of mood. Um, but to be able to go and record those conversations and record the concert and sort of learn about the history of um, the ways in which music has been used in geopolitics, going back to Marlena Dietrich during the Second World War and 
Louis Armstrong and Nina Simone. I mean, when you really dig into it, you find that um, that music can be a, quite a powerful ideological weapon. Say nothing then, and, and we've mentioned this and you touched on it as well. It, it came about or it was published just before that the, the podcast got up and going. Uh, this was the book and a, another piece people might have read, maybe the headline, you know, where the bodies are buried as well that appeared in the paper um, around Jean McConville and the disappearance of Jean McConville. Can I ask, when, when you came to that story, what preconceptions had you, if any, uh, about the North and the conflict and society there? Oh, I, I, had a, I had a lot of preconceptions. I mean, I had grown up in a, a quite Irish-American enclave in Boston, um, in a part of Boston called Dorchester. And, um, you know, they, they raised money for the IRA at the, at the bar down the street from my childhood home. Um, and so I think that I had had a, uh, a, a quite a simplistic sense of the conflict. Um, I think there was always a lot of romance in Irish America associated with the IRA and associated with Jerry Adams. And I also think that with the piece, I had this sense that, um, I mean, it's interesting. I think America loves to sort of see its own instrumental role in something. It was kind of a triumphalist interpretation of the Good Friday Agreement in no small measure because people like Bill Clinton and George Mitchell uh, were perceived as having sort of midwifed it. Um, that it was just this, this total miracle and now everything was coming up roses. And... I should say, I mean, I think it was a diplomatic miracle, and I, I don't mean to to undersell at all uh, what an incredibly important historical moment the Good Friday Agreement was. But I don't, I don't think that I had quite appreciated how brittle the peace was, and so that was a real education for me. Uh, and when you came away from it, uh, and uh, and now maybe looking back with what you've learned i mean have you a particular view on on society and the and the direction it's going and and i i don't know how 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 much you follow issues around kind of fights over the protocol and the good friday agreement and all of this but yeah. th there's this kind of um building sense of momentum we'll put it that way towards a united ireland and and there's there, there's an argument that you know brexit has has added fuel uh, to that locomotive. I mean, kind of from afar, somebody who came in and had their kind of their their preconceptions cured, if we'll call it that, they their misconceptions cured. Like, what what is what is your view on all of that? I mean, that seems that seems right to me. You know, I said at the end of my book that there's this this appalling irony, which is that um, you had three decades of bloodshed that, and there were there were many reasons for the troubles and the bloodshed and the troubles. But you know, on on certainly on the part of the IRA, uh, the objective was a united Ireland, and and three decades of of terrible bloodshed couldn't achieve it. Um, what a historical irony to think that Brexit might be what finally does it. Um, I think that seems right. I mean, I will say again, in terms of preconceptions, it was, it was, uh, I think a lot of people in the States, particularly Irish Americans, are under the assumption that, uh, that, that, you know, that everybody in the Republic of Ireland wants to reunify with the North, that all Catholics in the North would want to have a united Ireland, and that all Protestants would not. And of course, you know, you get there and you talk to people, and I spent, you know, over four years, I made seven trips to, to Belfast and spent a great deal of time talking to people and, and learning. Um, 
And you learn that for a lot of people, it's like these issues are anywhere else. I mean, ideology is part of it, I suppose, and tribalism can be part of it. But but it's also a pocketbook issue, right? It's questions about what are the benefits? What would taxation look like? How's it, you know, how will this affect me in my actual day-to-day life? The madness of Brexit is that I think that particularly in the North, people were able to enjoy this ambiguity where they were part of the UK and part of Ireland, part of Europe. Um, you could have two passports. You could, you could be both and get all the benefits of both. And of course, what Brexit says is, choose. And, you know, I don't know how soon it'll happen. But my sense is that the choice will most likely ultimately be to go with Europe. Yeah, it's it's reminding me there of the the great uh, scene in the last episode of Derry Girls, if you haven't seen it, where they're they're discussing it, they say, well, you can be you can be British or Irish, or you can be bi. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I haven't, you know, it's a great source of um, frustration (laughs) that Derry Girls has not come to Netflix here yet. And so I keep hearing from people in the UK and Ireland about the the last season and particularly that final, the Good Friday Agreement episode, but I won't be able to watch it for for months. Well, listen, I highly recommend it. You might be able to watch it uh, here when you sign into your Netflix account next month when you're in ah, Ireland. Ah, that's you, the you, plan. You'll you like get it. all yeah. of our, our content. Uh, Patrick Radenkeefe is going to be here. He's going to be discussing both Empire of Pain, that book about the opioid epidemic and, and the Sackler family, and Say Nothing uh, as well, the book about Jean McConville uh, and the issue of the disappeared at a number of events at the Festival of Writing and Ideas. It's happening on the 10th, 11th and 12th of June. It's in Burroughs House, absolutely beautiful setting in South County, Carlow. If you go to festivalofwritingandideas.com, you'll find all of the details and you can buy tickets there. Patrick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's our lot for today's edition of The Hard Shoulder. I'm sorry to say I'll be back tomorrow at four off the ball are up next. My thanks to the production team, to Alex Russo, to Roisin Davis, to Carlos Sullivan, Dee King and Ronan Coveney were my producers. Mark Simpson was the editor. Michael Quilligan and Peter Malloy were on sound. Have a great evening, folks. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.